Well, let me begin by asking a question to you. If someone were to ask you, what were the, what is the chief concern of the authors of the New Testament? If you were to sit down, let's say in one reading, and you were to read right through the New Testament, and you were to have to ask the, answer the question, what was the main concern of the New Testament authors? What do you think your answer would be? Maybe to tighten up the question a bit, if, uh, if we had to draw a circle around the church, would the New Testament authors, would their main concern be those inside that circle or those outside that circle? Which ones do you think it would be? Well, the answer, friends, is not hard to arrive at. Just consider the title or the people of whom the New Testament epistles are addressed to. The church in Rome. The church in Corinth. The churches in Galatia. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, even Hebrews to a degree, James, right? First and second Peter. All of these are, are addressed to the church in some ways. Concerns in the church. Even the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus, those are written to pastors about concerns in the church. And that, of course, is not to say that they were not interested in the evangelization of the nations. Of course they were. They spent their life in dedication to advancing the gospel. But those New Testament authors understood something that I think can be lost upon we 21st century evangelicals in the West that have inherited a Christian tradition. These authors understood that the most formidable enemy is not out there as such as it is in here. The narratives of the world, the schemes of the devil, and the weakness of our own flesh, like viruses slowly infecting the narrative of the gospel inside here, the church. That was their main concern. These three things falling lightly on confessing Christians. And the result, the, the, content, uh, the consequence of such compromises of these things slowly, often indiscernibly infecting the church is not just the loss or the confusion of a church member sort of here or there. That is sad and tragic, but not nearly as sad and tragic as entire community of Christians, churches, taking the names of Christ, calling themselves Christian churches, and at the same time, those three things, the world, the schemes of the devil, and the weakness of the, of the flesh have in practice taken over those communities without their ever really knowing it. The inauthentic church posing as light, but actually living more in darkness. This was the chief concern of the apostles, unrealized hypocrisy in the church. And so James, friends, continues his assault upon the insincerity of the church. Uh, we've been seeing that time and again, week after week. He's been helping the Christian dispersion understand not only what the Christian is to believe, like in our church, our statement of faith, but he's especially interested in how they live out what they believe, our church covenant, which you can read over here, how we live out what we believe. James is concerned about how we be doers of the word. James is defining what it looks like to look like a Christian as such. Or as we've said here in our series through James, to be an authentic Christian, what that looks like. And this morning, it'll come in stark form, this idea by we will consider the wisdom from below and what it looks like and the wisdom from above and what it looks like. Uh, James is going to tease us out, tease these two things out and expose us to the truth. Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. Uh, big idea this morning, our answer to those two things is that authentic Christianity is first pure, then peaceable. 
not bitter and selfish. That's what we'll see this morning. Authentic Christianity is first pure and then peaceable, not bitter and selfish. Take a look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A heart and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. First point, let's consider the wisdom from below, the wisdom from below. And I start by asking the same question that uh, James does there at the beginning. I say to you, Restoration Church, who is wise and understanding among us? Who is wise and understanding among us? Who are the ones that is in our midst that are worth emulating because of the way that they emulate the Savior Christ? Well, James' answer is, you will know them, not necessarily by their deep confession of doctrine, their acquisition of such, although that's important. You will know them, James will teach us. You will know them by their works in the meekness of wisdom. You'll know them in the, by the works of their meekness with wisdom. You'll know them how they live. Uh, but for now, he shows us uh, what it doesn't look like. To begin with, he's going to talk about this wisdom for low, from below. What it doesn't look like to represent Christ. Wisdom, his answer is going to be wisdom from below is marked by having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. That's, that's his answer. You'll know the wisdom from below, which is the bad wisdom, uh, is marked by having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart. Now, a couple things to begin with beneath the surface of the text that are, that are not as readily apparent. Take off for, to begin with, take a look at verse 14. You see that word, ha- that word have? This is really important. That word have, um, that word have there is in the present active form. Some of you are going, seriously, we're going to get some grammar in lessons this morning. Yes, this stuff's important, right? It's in the present active form. In other words, what James is saying here is if you are continually having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, you ought not boast and be false to the truth. You just keep on having it in there. And when it, that notion about not boasting and being false to the truth. In other words, he's saying if it just stays in there all the time, don't call yourself a Christian. Because you're not. That's what he means by being false to the truth, boasting and being false to the truth. Now, to be clear, I'm sure all of us at some level have had or do at times have bitter jealousy. We all have at times selfish ambitions. However, again, if you are having these things in your hearts continually, there's no war against them. If bitter jealousy and selfish ambition have moved in and put up posters on the wall, put a bed over there in the corner of the room. And you're starting receiving mail, right? That's a problem. Then boasting or declaring your allegiance to Christ should stop. You're, you're being false to the truth. You're lying because you're not actually a Christian. 
If there is no war against bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, the second thing there that uh, I think helps us understand the text a bit more is, is that word for bitter. You see that word bitter there in verse 14? Uh, that's the same word that you see used for salt water back up in verse 11. Same word, salt water. Maybe some of you uh, have heard that word salty used as an idiom in our context, right? Dude lost a million dollars and he's salty, right? He got a speeding ticket and he's salty, right? He's angry. He's mad. He's bitter. That's what James is getting at. If someone is having a kind of salty jealousy, a kind of selfish anger in their hearts continually, always being upset. And by jealousy, we mean there the desire for other things, a form of idolatry, right? If that kind of desire lives loudly and continually within, no war against them, then their boast in Christ is false to the truth and they need to stop taking the name of Christ. But it's not just bitter jealousy or salty jealousy as such. It's also, he lists there, selfish ambition. And guys, that first word's really important. Selfish ambition. Ambition is not the problem. Ambition is good. Matter of fact, I would make the case that James is very interested in all of us having a lot of ambition. Ambition for God. We need more godly ambition, not less. Ambition is not the problem. The problem is in the first part of that ledger. Selfish ambition. So get ambition, but more importantly, get it from God and don't have selfish ambition. Those that have selfish ambition live living continually in your heart. Those that, that is, continually want what they want and they will do whatever it takes to get it, no matter what the word of truth says. They just keep wanting it. Then the boast to Christ is false to the truth. It's a lie. It's not sincere. It's not authentic. So we need to ask ourselves the question, where does this kind of attitude come from? This bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Where does it come from? What's its kind of source? Well, James tells us that the source is from below. Uh, not that the wisdom, uh, not the wisdom that comes down from above, which we'll consider, but instead, uh, that's the kind of wisdom, this kind of wisdom from below, he says, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. From below. So people like that have a kind of wisdom or a way of life that is guided by the thinking from below, not from above. They reveal their boast in Christ is false by the way they live in love, right? We've been using this little math formula, stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief, I'm a Christian, actual practice, I live continually in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the wisdom of for love. Equal your actual belief is you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. Now, I'll flesh out what this looks like more practically in just a minute, but I want us to pick up what James is laying down here with that language of wisdom coming from below, right? You look down and you see that word there in verse 15. It's, it's come from below. I want us to think about that for a minute. This should be, for those of us that have been walking through this, this language of coming from something uh, should be familiar to us. Flip back over to chapter 1. You'll see there. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16 says, remember, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down. That is the, remember, that was a present active already. Keeps coming down continually from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then he goes on to talk about in verse 18, salvation, right? God has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be, Christians should be a kind of first fruits, a sacrificial offering of his creatures. 
And so if you've been truly, sincerely, authentically brought forth by the word of Christ, then you look more like where you were born. You look like you have these good and perfect gifts keeping coming down, changing you. You look like a sacrificial offering of Christ that has good and perfect gifts coming, continually coming down, not bad gifts from below. But if you are, again, continually having this salty jealousy and selfish ambitions coming out of your hearts, if that's what marks you, well, then your profession, your boast in Christ is false. It needs to stop. It's hypocritical. And friend, it's not only giving you a false sense of security. It's also hurting the witness of the church. So let's try to understand more about this wisdom from below. Let's think about it a little bit more. Scratch at the surface. Again, we see the three great enemies of authentic Christianity, we see the ingredients for wisdom from below in those three things. To begin with, you see the flesh, what we often call the flesh, ourselves, our sinful selves. We see that reflected in the selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. But then in verse 15, you've got the earthly and unspiritual, representing what we often call the world, right? Uh, Paul or James is going to go on to say in verse 4 of chapter 4, do not love the world. Earthly and unspiritual are the patterns of the world. Whatever the spirit of the age is, where you live is being taught to us that is at odds with the truth of Christ. And you don't care about that. And so that's the kind of notion of the wisdom of the world. So the flesh, the world, and then finally, again, you have the demonic. The demonic. How often do we forget that critical truth of Ephesians 6.12? How often? Man, I've been thinking about this this week. I forget this so often. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, most of us might know that, yeah, there's some struggle against our flesh. We kind of know that. right? And maybe a few more of us might be understanding that there are systems in the world that are trying to teach us to be hypocritical at some level. But I wonder how many of us actually take the time to realize that there are evil sports forces of evil. There is the demonic that is at work to make us hypocritical Christians. They want that. They desire that. They're actively engaged. Guess what? Right now, in this room, happening. J.C. Ryle says true Christianity is a fight. He argued that from the day of our conversion, Christians are called to be soldiers for Christ in a war for their holiness and Christ's exaltation. Their friends, as it is, I think too many in our context don't heed these calls and they live as though we were in peacetime. They, they, they live as though we were in peacetime. They give maybe 1% of their hearts to Christ and then they're surprised that by the time they turn 60 years old, they hardly resemble anything that's a Christian. But friends, that's not because Christ didn't warn us, as is exemplified here. That's not as though Christ didn't even give us commands to be uh, obedient against these three principalities. Commands to stop taking the name of Christ if you don't resemble the wisdom from above, but instead you're more often resembling the wisdom from below. And so if your life looks more like these three things, more like they're living from the power of the flesh, the world, or the devil... James is saying, don't be false to the truth. Don't call yourself a Christian. 
And you know this is you if on the bitter side or the salty jealousy side of things, if you, if you want what you want so badly that it owns you, it's your master. Could be a possession like money in general or a house or something like that, like that owns you, that defines you. Or, or maybe it's a kind of lifestyle, right? Like you want to take regularly trips to Europe. Uh, relationships to whatever people, uh, whatever, whatever kinds of people that you want in whatever way you want. Could be a certain reputation. You're owned by that. You, you, this desire to have it. You, you want to be seen as wise, learned, or powerful so bad that you are quickly angered. And when somebody exposes you as not being those things, you again get quickly angered. Could be a kind of position, a certain position. You want that title or that name so badly that it dominates your heart to the point of bitterness. Could be pastor, could be politician, could be CEO, could be project manager. You're so covered up with desire for that that you'll do almost anything to get it. Get that lifestyle, get that reputation, that place of power. It owns you. It's what you think about most of the day and the good and gracious commands of Christ, the wisdom that is from above. You pay lip service to it at some level, but really the wisdom you are guided by is that bitter jealousy. You're salty. To the point of having that, you want that particular way of life so bad. And you know this is you when you look at the people that do have what you want and you do almost anything to see them toppled from that position and you be given their place instead. You burn with so much jealousy that you can't utter a word about that person that has what you what you want without gossiping, without slandering, without tearing them down. They, in your heart and mind, are the enemy and they deserve no love no matter what Jesus says. You enjoy the thought of them losing their position and being exposed. It thrills you at the thought. And at the same time, you're thrilled at the possibility of inheriting their platform or their lifestyle or their possession, which then leads to selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is similar to bitter jealousy. Matter of fact, a lot of overlap there, but it's more honest. The ambition for that thing or that place is for self. It's for me. And because it is, selfish ambition is quick to quarrel, quick to be hostile in order to acquire what it wants. And after all, that's what selfish ambition is really about, isn't it? It's about power, about getting power. It's it's ambitious to get someone or something so that self, so that I can rule over it in just the way I please and then sort of, as it were, have my life the way that I want it and be happy. But friends, folks that thinks like this are fools to think like this. When you're ruled by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, friend, that thing that you want or that thing that they desire, that is the master. And you are the slave. And you'll never win. No matter how much you get. Those who are ruled by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition lose. And worse, there's all kinds of shrapnel that other people hit, get hit by on the way out. Because of their selfish ambitions, it's not just unilateral. All kinds of other people get hit along the way. Take a look again at the passage. Look down there at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the fruit of wisdom from below is communities of darkness. Communities of brokenness and vileness. Friends, this is why Adam and Eve found themselves outside the garden. 
This is why Sodom and Gomorrah became Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why Israel became uh, what it did when they were uh, defeated and exiled. This is why much of our nation is what it is. This is why uh, that pastor or that Christian leader or that church became what it did. Their hearts were ruled not by the wisdom that comes from above. Their hearts were ruled by the wisdom from below. No matter what they said. Their hearts were ruled by the flesh, by the world, and by the devil. And the disorder and the vile practices that result are the fruit of their hearts. James' counsel is that if this describes any of us, not that we have, uh, this describes any of us, not that we have uh, moments or outbursts of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I trust that's true of all of us in this room. Not even that we commit those sins of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, but if we unrepentantly live in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That is, if it goes on and on unchecked with no desire to come up under the rule of Christ, to repent, to go low while still taking the name of Christ. James says, stop the charade. Stop it. Stop the hypocrisy. Either repent and follow Christ and be guided by the wisdom from above or stop lying about Jesus and his church and remove his name from your lips. Live, that is, in keeping with where your source of wisdom comes from. And so, friend, if that describes you this morning, if some of you are sitting here going, I am under a great deal of conviction. I think this might be me. Listen, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to the person that brought you. Uh, As I'm about to rehearse here in verse uh, 18, the church is supposed to be a place of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. So if this is you and you're maybe wrestling with or you're determined this is me, talk to somebody. And we want to help. We want to help. The whole point in which we're walking this through is to try to help this. Well, this is wisdom from below. It's continually has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's focused very much on me. Well, let's get to the bright side, shall we? Let's consider now the wisdom from above. If wisdom from below is bitter or salty because of its source of earthiness or demonic, or that is me, wisdom from above is tasty, is delicious, is sweet, is beautiful. Wisdom from above is all of these things. It's fresh because of its source in the purity of God. That's why James says that wisdom from above is first pure. That's so important in this text. In order for anything to be good and perfect, right or true, it must first be pure and only then can it be peaceable. The fruitless tree must have its disease treated first. Only then can it bring forth the peach. And so it is with us all. We've got to remember the context here. Look back up in chapter 3, verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Implication? No. It can't, right? It's unable to do that. Can a fig tree bear olives? Can grapevine produce figs? Can someone that consistently has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition produce peace? James' answer is no. Because it's not tapped into the root from above. It's not been made pure. Therefore, it cannot then make peace, even if it insists that it can. Even if it insists that it is coming from the wisdom from below. It can't do it because it's not tapped into the source of Christ and his purity. 
wants you. All of us at some level, we all want peace, don't we? We all want gentleness. My goodness, take a look at this list again there in verse 17. Don't we want reasonableness? All of us. Don't we want mercy? Don't we want good fruits? Don't we want impartiality? Don't we want sincerity? Don't we want, all of us, want some level of a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of justice? We want a world that is absent from war and racism and rape and fornication. We want a world free from gossip and slander and malice, free from rivalries and divisions. A world where you don't have to wonder if the pastor is a fake and if this church is a bunch of fakes. A world where you don't have to worry about those kinds of things. Everybody wants these kinds of things. A world free from pain and suffering disease. We want, that is, a world free from the dirt and the grime that have covered up our timelines, our hearts, our families, our world. We all want this. Now that means that we must first have purity. And only then can a world of peace come. In other words, friends, we have to clean the window if we're going to see the sunset outside. Right now, friends, we, we find that everyone, it seems, wants peace in some form. It's protesting something. Everybody is. On the right, they have a whole set of issues that they're angry about. On the left, they have a whole set of issues that they're angry about. Each of them wanting to fix something they feel has gone wrong. They want justice. They want righteousness. They want peace. Everybody does, and as well they should. But very few people seem to be interested in what it takes to bring about lasting peace. Very few people seem to be interested and purity, the fountain of peace. And the way that we know that goes back to verse 13. Because neither of them seem to be, seem to have a good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. They seem to be representing more the wisdom from below. See, at a high level, everyone is mad or offended about something, but the response rarely seems to have good conduct that produces good works in the meekness of wisdom. Because very few seem to be interested in getting purity from God first. Very few few seem to be interested in getting a plank out of their own eye by going to God and having it removed. Instead, they seem to want to bully the other side into peace with no repentance, no seeking of God on their own. But friends, that kind of seeking of peace never works. Not lasting ways anyway. And that kind of seeking of peace, bullying the other side with no repentance, without seeking God, that kind of peace, that kind of peace reeks of bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions. Even if the cause is in the name of Christ, all of the bad conduct that is proud, not meek, reveals that they are tapped into the earthly, not the heavenly wisdom from above. But not Jesus. He was not like that at all. Jesus changed, is changing, and will change the world because he understood something that we tend to forget. He understood and he understands that peace only comes first by first being made pure. Guys, this is literally why Jesus came. Jesus was literal wisdom that literally came from above. He was tempted in every way as we are, right? Satan tempted him to have a crown without a cross. 
He tempted him to have the wealth of nations without the pain of needles being stuck into his head, into his hands and his feet. That is, Jesus was tempted to have peace without purity, but he never gave in. First, because he was God in the flesh. He was first pure himself. But also because he knew that for peace to come, purity had to come first. And that's why he was called the Prince of Peace, because he came to purchase purity. And then from that would flow a world of peace. So just look at that list and consider Christ in verse 17. Jesus was gentle. And he was tender to children, to orphans, and to widows, and to repentant sinners. He was tender. He was gentle. He was open to reason. He listened. He asked questions. And yet he never compromised on the truth. He was full of mercy, offering it to drunkards, prostitutes, and wealthy tax collectors. He had good fruits, right? He forgave sin. He, uh, he evangelized the lost, cared for the poor. He was impartial. He cared for women and men, for Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. He was sincere. He was authentic. He was the real thing. And the way that we see that is by his good conduct, his, uh, his works in the meekness of wisdom, to use the language of James. His good conduct revealed his good source. He was first pure so that he could then provide peace. Maybe a good illustration of Jesus in this way would be the story of him and a leper. I'm sure many of you have heard this story. We don't know how much leprosy this man had that came to Jesus. Maybe it was just a finger or two. Maybe the man's body was covered up in leprosy. We don't know. I'm sure he was scared, the man with leprosy. And the old uh, covenant People with leprosy were told to go outside the camp to protect the rest of the camp. So I'm sure he was probably very lonely, this leper. But this man was not afraid of Christ. Though he was unclean, he came to Jesus. To Jesus, why? To find purity and then peace. And he knelt before Jesus. And as he knelt before Jesus, he bowed before him. The text says, it says, Lord... If you will, you can make me clean. And I'm sure in that moment, there was nobody even around him. All the people were probably scared of this man's leprosy alone, but there was Jesus, this man right in front of him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Everyone stepped away, but not Jesus. Jesus steps to him and he touches the unclean leper. And he says, I will be clean. And immediately after, the leper was cleansed. Immediately, the man was made pure and then had peace. And then we need to ask the question, don't we? How does this happen? Right? How can Jesus touch a man with leprosy and not become dirty and infected as he was? Because Jesus was purity. He was and is the essence of holiness He didn't just have purity. He was purity. He was not only from heaven. He was heaven. And because he was, because he was first pure, he was then able to make peace. Beloved, this is our gospel. This is the gospel. Beloved, don't you see? Don't you see? You cannot have peace without first having purity. 
No matter how much money you have, no matter how much power you have, no matter how many vacations you have, no matter what relationship you may or may not have, you cannot have peace without first being made pure. Peace flows from purity. And so some of you might be asking, all right, Nathan, well, how do I get that purity then? Because I need peace. Well, friend, that's the most important question you will ever ask your entire life. The answer is like the leper, you come to Jesus in your impurity. You come to Jesus in your uncleanness, in your bitter jealousies, in your selfish ambitions, in your sin, in your shame, in your guilt. You don't hide from Jesus. You come to Jesus. But when you come like the leper, like the leper, you bow the knee. You come to Jesus as Lord. Listen, this is important. Not as a trinket to fill your bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions. No. But you come to him that you might know and enjoy him forever as the greatest treasure of all. After you see yourself for who you are and you see Jesus for who he is, you come to him. You, you see the need to have him not just change your behavior, but to change your heart, knowing that the heart is the fountain of your works. You come to him mourning your sin and you ask him to take it. You ask him, you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, if you will, make me clean. Lord Jesus, if you will, make my heart pure. And listen, he'll purify you. He will. And only then will you begin to know the peace that passes all understanding. Come to Jesus to find the purity that you need to experience the peace that you desire. But friend, you should know something. The peace that Jesus offers is not like the world. John 14, 27, Jesus says this. Peace, he's speaking to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, Jesus said that because he knew that peace, purity and peace traveled through the cross. Through pain, through suffering, through disappointment, through death, like gold refined by fire. The wisdom of the world offers peace by making compromises, trying to mitigate any hardship, any valley. But Jesus knew that peace from above couldn't make any compromises. He knew that in order for purity to happen, pain had to happen. In order for life to come, death had to come first. He was going to have to deal with our bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions. He was going to have to deal with our sin. There could be no compromise there. He knew the Lord couldn't just sweep those sins under the rug and just forget about it. They had to be dealt with just like any, any crime. And so unlike wisdom from below, Jesus reveals his wisdom from above by his conduct on the cross. By his sacrificing his life for ours to take away sins, to give purity, and then to offer peace. See, the way that he gives his purity and then his peace is not like the wisdom from below. It was by Jesus, the innocent, taking the penalty of we, the guilty, on the cross. 
This is how we gain purity. This is how we know wisdom from above, right? This is what James is teaching us. This is how we find peace by knowing, believing, trusting, and treasuring the fact that the only one that never had an ounce of sin in his heart, the only one that never had any bitter jealousy or selfish ambition was the very same one that was willing to take the penalty for those sins in order to make us pure and then peaceable. That's what he did on the cross. He bore our shame. He bore our guilt. All of our iniquity was laid upon him because Jesus wanted us to know peace. This new life, new heart. He knew purity had to come first. He knew that the cost of purity was his own sinless blood. That's the only way you can get it. And for all that receive that gift, that repent of sins and trust in him, all that repent of the sins and the bitter jealousies and the selfish ambitions and believe that he alone is worthy to be trusted and treasured. He alone is the only source of purity for you. He offers them new hearts, pure and peaceable hearts, new loves, new affections, new lifestyles under the lordship of his new and peaceable rule. On the other side of the purity of his blood, then is that everlasting peace. And friends, this peace is not just a thing. It's a person. It's him. It's him. But we have to remember, right? Jesus doesn't give us peace as the world does. Wisdom from above is first made pure and then peaceable. And so while you're counted pure in Christ, you are given a peace that is not like the peace of the world. The peace that he leads you to is in the same shape as the one your purity was bought in. To live inside it means you have to learn to die to yourself. Like he died to the world. In other words, you've got to learn how to take up your cross and follow him. Die to your bitter jealousies and selfish ambition. Right? That's why Jesus said the way is hard that leads to eternal life and few will enter it. See, most people want peace without purity because they don't want to die. They'll trust Jesus in the sense that they'll use him to get what peace they want. But few people want to actually die to self. They want to hold on to their visions of grandeur that they had before Christ, not be changed. Again, this is why James is writing. People are boasting in Christ, but their lives are lying about being made pure. They won't die to their selfish ambitions and they take up. They will not die to their own selfish ambitions and take up Christ's ambitions for their lives and love others better than themselves but not us, not this church, not restoration church, right? Not us. Take a look down there at verse 18. I'm going to finish here. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's us. That's us. Verse 18 is us. From the purity of Christ We live in the peace of Christ by making peace with others. And how do we make that peace? James tells us by daily turning away from the wisdom from below and tapping into the wisdom from above by by tapping into Christ, by tapping into Jesus day after tireless day. We live in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not listen. We do not white knuckle this behavior. It's impossible to do this in our own strength. You can't do it. We love others as we receive the love of Christ and the gospel. And from the power of that gospel, we are gentle towards one another. The way from above is from love and for love. 
From love for love. Love from God, love for God and for neighbor. And by the way, this kind of love is not a squishy kind of sentimental uh, kind of love with no teeth to it. No, it's a love that's built upon a rock that withstands the attack of ourselves, the world, and the devil himself. We are defined as adopted sons and daughters of God. We're family. This is a meaningful, hearty, deep, abiding love. So hearty and so powerful, it leads us to be open to reason. We don't have to be so defensive all the time. We don't have to war on social media. We're free from it. It leads us to be full of mercy. It leads us to be full of good fruits. It leads us to be impartial. It leads us to be sincere, not fakes. Authentic. No longer spending our energies on ourselves and our ambitions. We're ambition for Christ and the good of our neighbor. And as we learn to love each other like this, from the love of Christ, learning to love one another as Christ loved us, we make peace and then enjoy a harvest of righteousness. That's what the verse says. In other words, guys, if I can use the metaphor, think of this church as a farm. (laughs) The soil is the hearts and minds of the beloved here, as well as our neighbors and even the nations to an extent. We, We sow the peace of Christ in one another's hearts day after day. Reminding each other of Jesus, reminding one another of our hope, serving one another in love. And as we do, guess what happens? Verse 18 says, we reap a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of justice and joy and peace. And for those of you that have been around for a few years, just think about all the peace that we have harvested over the last 13 years. So much peace. Why? Where'd that come from? Because Nathan's awesome. Y'all know that ain't true, right? It's Christ. He's the fountain as we've tapped into him and tried to hold each other up. Man, all this peace has come up over the course of the last 13 years. We ain't perfect. But man, so much peace, so much righteousness because we're tapping into the wisdom from below. And all the noise of the wisdom from below out there, we said, no, we're going to turn that down. We're going to turn up the wisdom from below, above. We're going to turn that up, turn the wisdom from below down. We're going to reject the way from below. We're going to fight to live in the wisdom from above as we tap into the power of Christ, his word, his people and prayer, as we sow the peace of Christ into one another in word and in deed. And soon enough, beloved, we're going to be home. We'll be in heaven. And we will say that it was worth it all, all of the fighting for living in this wisdom from above. We will finally have the world as it was meant to be. But until then, beloved, Long and fight to find your purity in Christ and then come to enjoy the peace of Christ and live in all of that fruit and sow love in each other throughout the week and to our neighbors and to the nations, keeping that ultimate peace in mind, the place of peace in the person of peace. He's our hope. He's our joy. And so may we enjoy the harvest of righteousness and the life of his church. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the ways in which, as Chris has already prayed this morning, forgive us for the ways in which we live and the wisdom from below. Teach us day after day to tap into the power of the wisdom from above. 
Teach us to live in the power of the gospel as we look into the treasure of the gospel, Christ the Lord. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves now to be reminded of where our power comes from, reminding of where the wisdom from above comes from, prepare us for it and help us to be reminded of the new life, the new hearts that you've given us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.